You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, well, um, let's begin, and I'm going to do a little recapping about what we did last week. Mary, I'm sorry. I hope you will um, bear with me. Okay, good, good. Well, I'm going to begin by praying the Fleming Rutledge prayer that I love so much that she usually starts her sermons with. I just won't be able to sound like her as much as I wish I could. Come, Holy Spirit, like a fire burn, like the wind cleanse, convict, convert, and consecrate our lives. Amen. All right, so I'm going to recap a bit from last week's class. Um, This is the second and final week, yay, of a series, for lack of a better imagination, I entitled An Advent Meditation, Who We Are and What Are We Preparing For, or On What Do We Await. So last week was mainly focused on how the season of Advent is a time when we recall a past event, the birth of Jesus, and we look forward in anticipation to a promised future event, Jesus' second coming. And Advent, like Lent, is a penitential season. Advent saves us from pole vaulting right into the joy of Christmas. The season of Advent is John the Baptist telling us to prepare the way of Christ's arrival by repenting of our sins and looking alert, being on watch. And as a people, that the who are we part of this meditation as a people, we are people in the in-between time, waiting for God's salvation to be completed. We are outcast of the Garden of Eden, and therefore we are currently homeless. We long for a return to the one place where we actually knew paradise and enjoyed perfect communion with God. But God has locked the gates of Eden and guards them with the cherubim and a flaming sword that turns every way. The specific purpose of this guard, get this, was to prevent Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life by which they would be made eternal like God. This tree had not been forbidden when God gave Adam and Eve their instructions. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were not to eat, and which, of course, they shortly thereafter did just that. Um, And that tree made them, like God, um, have knowledge of good and evil. So when God locked us out of our garden so we would not have access to the tree of life, he doomed us to our own mortality. Our sin had polluted us already unto death. So last week, we looked at some of the ways we as fallen people deal with our expulsion from the garden, from our alienation, our not really belonging. Um, One way is we deny it. You know, it didn't really happen because we are not really that bad. Um, This was repeated over and over with the Israelites in the wilderness and then again in the promised land. We are, by nature, 
idol makers and we prefer defining our own reality and creating our own gods. Another way we deal with our situation is we think we can determine our own salvation, our own restoration of a home. And it's usually a political matter in our heads. You know, for the Israelites, all the promises of the coming Messiah, they sort of managed that down to thinking of a Messiah who is all king, his government almighty, and his reign as ruler would restore Jerusalem to its proper place and the Jews would be made free from their Roman oppression and therefore salvation solved. Um, And we can see this same misguided faith and political leadership today throughout the world. Um, It is yet another attempt to establish our own salvation because we think we have the tools to do it. And then another way is we despair. We actually do see our situation for what it is, and we are without hope. I was talking to a a Sanford friend who I knew while I was working there, and she works in the counseling services department at Sanford. And she told me that the number of nervous breakdowns and cases of depression among the students are off the charts this semester. She can't, she can't keep enough hours to, to see all the kids that are coming to her in extremis. She says GPAs are being destroyed by an inability to get the academic work done. It seems that this age group is having a really hard time dealing with the current reality of COVID and its impact on their lives. And we probably all know some college students who really are struggling right now and our families are um, friends of ours. Um, and, but to me, this is just putting in stark relief what is always true about our condition. We are not in control. Things fall apart and the center cannot hold, to borrow a line from Yeats' poem appropriately entitled, The Second Coming. It feels like we are free-falling through this transitory life. But again, let's get to the and, because we are here um, as, as Christian believers in this room today. We, and of course, for those of us in the body of Christ, we are also a saved people through atoning work of Jesus on the cross. We have been adopted as sons and daughters into God's kingdom, and he promises us that he will bring bring us home. His center will hold. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24, verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all tribes of the earth will mourn, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It was finished on the cross. And when the Son of Man comes again, John tells us in his revelation that the Son of Man will declare, it is done. I find that interesting. I want to think about that for just a minute. Jesus tells us on the cross, it is finished. And he doesn't mean my life is finished. He means his salvational work is finished. It's completed. The curtain is torn in two. And yet we know that we are still in this time where we must deal with sin 
and brokenness and disease and despair. Um, and so when the Son of Man comes back, he's going to declare, it is done. And bear with me for a second. It's a really silly analogy, but I, I just I want to talk it out with you. Um, our dear friend, Fran Cade, found a snake in her house a couple of weeks ago. And the Cades seem to have kind of a very unusual um, history with snakes and snake bites. And, you know, th that's just a part of their family lore. So Fran was real clear that she was going to kill the snake. I, I, I can't go any further than right there because I can't imagine having the gumption to go get the shearers and come back and snap the thing's head off, which she did. She sent me a picture. Well, she said it was so weird because the snake's head kept snapping for a long time and his body wiggled. All Yeah, it was ugh. But I think about that serpent and Jesus crushed his head on the cross. But maybe we are now in this time where he's still wiggling around and snapping. He, he has not realized his destruction. And so when the Son of Man comes again and that beheaded snake is thrown into the lake of fire, it really will be done. So just wanted to toss that out with y'all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, if the incarnation has already happened, and better still, we know that Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection has happened, um, which, um, why is Advent the time when we prepare for the birth of Jesus, for an event already come? Well, I say it's for the same reason that Jews remember the Passover, the same reason we as Christians um, receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. We must remember the incredible audacity of the incarnation of the Son of God suspending His glory so He could be poured into a human embryo and dwell among us must never be forgotten or made less than the truly miraculous act that it is. We remember because it is such a pivotal moment in God's plan for us that we will never exhaust the implications of the Incarnation. It is important that we join in the story up close and in the here and now, not just from a 2,000 plus year perspective, ago perspective. The Incarnation is when God's reversal of sin begins. So let's look at Simeon in the temple as, as an example of what um, waiting for Christ looks like. Y'all just um, read along while I read it out loud. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that many thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So it's a pretty interesting moment. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Another way you could um, translate that word is comfort. Simeon was waiting for the consolation and comfort of Israel. And there is so much hope in his waiting. Luke doesn't tell us that Simeon was praying that Israel might be consoled. He tells us that Simeon was waiting for what he knew would happen and happen before he died. In the season of Advent, we recall with intention and faithful hope that we will see the God's Christ before we die. Like Simeon, we are to live knowing that we will. And indeed, we have. So Simeon, get this, is righteous and the Holy Spirit is upon him. I am struck that scripture also tells us that Joseph, Jesus's earthly father was a righteous man and that Mary his mother was overcome by the Holy Spirit to me this just is telling us how incredibly active God is in all of this I mean he's anointing people with his spirit he is uh, he is declaring folks righteous he there's a lot going on in this little piece of history And so what might appear to the skeptical observer as a sleepy little story about ancient primitive people easily relegated to a cute Christmas pageant, it's not that at all. God is literally breaking in and beginning his intervention among us in the flesh. So it seems completely believable that a righteous, faithful, hopeful man would recognize the Christ child when he was carried into the temple to be presented at age 40 days, age 40 days by his parents, sorry. Um, Simeon recognized Jesus and took him up in his arms. Now think how amazing this is. All faithful Jews at that time brought their 40-day-old infants and they traveled to Jerusalem to go into the temple to have their child presented and to offer a sacrifice. So Simeon surely had seen hundreds of babies being presented. How did he know it was the Christ himself when he saw Jesus? I don't know about you, but 40-day-old babies, they all kind of look alike. Um, I just think that is so cool. And the question is, would we recognize Jesus? Simeon also proclaims the universality of Jesus' saving work. He will be a light to the Gentiles, the people who are still walking in darkness, and he will be glory 
to the faithful Israelite remnant who have been watching and waiting for the divine light of the Messiah. The Lord tells his promised servant in Isaiah chapter 49, the servant that he is preparing to be the Messiah, um, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. No, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's plan for salvation is all-encompassing. It is too light a thing for only the preserved of Israel to be saved. And so now to Christ's second coming. Also, a real event coming in the historical future, if that is a term, <laughs> um, which we look towards during the season of Advent. Here's a wonderful note that I found in my ESV study Bible back at when they get into theology and all these good things. That's on my bucket list. I'm going to read all the notes in my ESV Bible. It'll take as long as reading the Bible itself. Um, it says, Christians have been saved from the penalty of our sins. That's what happened on the cross, which Jesus' incarnation made possible. And we are currently being saved from the power of sin. And that, of course, is sanctification by the Holy Spirit, which Jesus left among us, and he dwells among us today. And one day, when God's plan of salvation is completed, and we are with Christ, we shall be like him, and we shall be saved even from the presence of sin. And this is Christ's second and final coming. So we move from, we're being spared the penalty of our sin, we're being slowly spared the power of our sin, and one day we will not even be in its presence. The second coming of Christ is when the purposes of God, which are infinite, and have been working themselves out, um, either breaking into the boundaries of our finitude or just dwelling among it, like Jesus did, um, it, and God's purposes miraculously reach their glorious conclusion. The Son of Man will return to us from heaven in the same manner his apostles saw him ascend into heaven, and he will establish a new heaven and a new earth. He will come as the Lamb enthroned in the new Jerusalem, a celestial city with twelve cherubims at each gate, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But newsflash, the gates will be open. Everyone will have access. There will be no, no flaming swords preventing us from entering. This new home for us will be a city, not a garden. And it will not be inhabited by two people, but by the remnant of many nations. And unlike the garden... The existence of sin and evil will not be. The enemy who was in the garden has been destroyed and permanently cast into the lake of fire. All creation, not just us human beings, will be restored to perfect condition, restored and also new. And another difference, there will no longer be darkness. In fact, the sun and the moon will be replaced by the glory of God, and the lamp of this light is the Lamb. 
In Genesis, we are told that God separated the light from the darkness. He had dominion over the dark, but it continued to exist in opposition to the light. In the new creation, darkness does not exist. The prophet Isaiah, once again, you just got to live in Isaiah when you get into the comings of Christ. Um, who He foreshadows much of Christ's first and death, uh, second comings. He tells the soon-to-be-exiled Israelites, y'all know this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has, ridden upon, has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. All nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So this city of all light will attract and bring to it people who um, have names have been written in the book, and they this is where they belong. This is their home. Also in the new creation, the temple no longer exists. Holy God dwells among us without a tent as needed in the wilderness or walls or curtains as in the temple in Jerusalem. Nothing literally will separate us from his holy presence. And guess what else will be in the new creation? The tree of life. Its location will be in the middle of the city along both sides of the river of the water of life. And so what has been denied to us by God since our first act of disobedience is now freely available to the citizens of this new creation. We will be made eternal beings acceptable to our infinite creator. So in closing, um, I, th- I think about who these residents are going to be in, in, the, in the new city. I think the residents of the new Jerusalem will be Adams and Eves all grown up. We will be people who wandered in the desert, homeless, who failed at creating our own dynasties. We fashioned idols in our own image. We knew slavery and oppression. We knew sin and despaired against it. And then came that voice of the first advent. Prepare the way and they, we were able to recognize the Savior who lived among us, died for us, and rose again in victory over our death. These people, these residents, um, future residents, they then become the body of Christ, that's us, living in God's word and remembering in faith and assurance him and his promises even during persecution and vilification. So this, this is us. And these future residents, they are believers who wait with hopeful expectation now. The divine broke through. God's intervention in the flesh happened. He lived among us and he died for us. Reality has never been the same since. We are blessed, people, to be the ones waiting for his coming again. And I will um, close with um, the prayer I prayed last week. And then if you all have any thoughts or comments, I, I would love to hear them. 
But this is um, the prayer for the first Sunday in Advent, which will be next Sunday. Yeah. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.